Up next, an encore power of words. President Dwight D. Eisenhower's farewell address with Alan Shartok and historian, author, editor, and writer James Ledbetter. Stay here. The power of words is next. Words are powerful. They cause fear, confusion, and anger. Or they can create shared understanding. But when words are delivered by a powerful political leader, their impact can inspire us to great action. And it is to those words that we turn now. In the power of words. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This is the meaning of our liberty and our creed, why men and women and children of every race and every faith can join in celebration across this magnificent mall, and why a man whose father less than 60 years ago might not have been served at a local restaurant can now stand before you to take a most sacred oath. Hi, this is Alan Shartok. Welcome to The Power of Words, our year-long series that follows American history through some of the most memorable and inspiring political speeches of our time. We continue our series today with President Dwight D. Eisenhower's farewell address, delivered January 17, 1961. Joining us today to help set the scene and analyze the speech is historian, author, editor, and writer James Ledbetter. James Ledbetter is the author of Starving to Death on $200 Million, The Short, Absurd Life of the Industry Standard, and Made Possible by the Death of Public Broadcasting in the United States. His latest book is Unwarranted Influence, Dwight D. Eisenhower and the Military-Industrial Complex, published by Yale University Press. James Ledbetter was also the editor of The Great Depression, a Diary by Benjamin Roth. Mr. Ledbetter is also currently editor-in-charge of Reuters.com and has been the deputy managing editor at CNNMoney.com, senior editor at Time, working for the magazine's European edition and editor-in-chief of the Industry Standard Europe. James Ledbetter has written about politics and media for Slate, GQ, The American Prospect, The Washington Post, The Nation, The New York Times, Vibe, Mother Jones, and many other publications. Welcome, James Ledbetter. Oh, thank you. I feel tired just listening to all of that. How did you do it all? I mean, how have you done all of that? I don't sleep. (laughs) Well, James Ledbetter, I I have to tell you, your book is superb. It's concise, and the name of the book, of course, is Unwarranted Influence, Dwight D. Eisenhower and the Military-Industrial Complex. And so I guess the first thing I want to ask you is this. Who is Eisenhower? (laughs) Tough question. You know, I think that a lot of historians and biographers who have grappled with that question have concluded that Eisenhower is something of a paradox. And, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of cliche of Eisenhower biographers is that he always tried to strike a balance. And many of his speeches, including the farewell address, really do look at the world in terms of maintaining a balance and the importance of maintaining a balance. But I think that's in part because he himself was sort of a a man of contradiction. So, for example, his parents were Mennonite pacifists. Uh, His mother was very upset when he decided to to take on a a military career. And yet, of course, he goes on to be, you know, arguably the most successful general of the 20th century. Similarly, 
and this is very relevant to the farewell address that introduces the idea of a military-industrial complex. Eisenhower presided over a government of eight years that took America's nuclear arsenal from approximately 1,000 weapons to approximately 23,000 weapons. So in that sense, the very pillar of a military-industrial complex, and yet richly, complexly, ironically, hypocritically, depending on your point of view, also decides upon leaving office to sort of drop a little bomb on the American public and warn them against the power that was being vested in what he coined as the military-industrial complex that was a, a tremendous threat to democracy. And I think that one of the things that makes this speech delivered just about 50 years ago so enduring is that it, it's unique. It's very, very rare for an American president to call attention to anything that could be construed as negative involving the United States military before or since. And so Eisenhower, to answer your question, is a man of great passion, great intellect, but also great contradiction. Do you like him? I came to have a great deal of respect for Eisenhower over the course of, of researching this book. If the question is, you know, did he do some things as president or fail to do some things as president that are a stain on his record, I think the answer is yes. I, I think that the behavior of the United States in Guatemala in his first term is, is uh, almost impossible to defend. I think he was very slow. He and his administration were very slow to get on board with civil rights. Of course, the Brown versus Board of Education decision happened during his time. But in his favor, unlike both his predecessor and his successor, he did not engage the country in, in a ground war, you know, despite lots of temptations to do so. You know, today's Republican Party pays a lot of lip service to the idea of fiscal austerity or fiscal conservatism. Eisenhower actually practiced it. Eisenhower was actually capable of delivering a budget to Congress that spent less than the year before, and he did it more than once. This is something that has eluded almost every president since. And I think that his experience in the military, which is really unparalleled in the 20th century, you really, you really have to go back to somebody like Grant or even George Washington to have a president who had the depth of military experience that Eisenhower had. And that experience, I think, led him to a much richer, deeper, and complex understanding of what war really meant. And as a result, particularly toward the end of his life, I think he became very, very interested in preserving peace. And for that, he deserves a lot of respect, in my view. You tipped your hat to his intellect earlier. Was he smart? It's an interesting question. Certainly during his presidency, he was not widely regarded as an intellectual. I think that's fair to say, probably an understatement. You know, he, his habits were very kind of lower middle brow in terms of what he liked to read. He had speech problems, particularly after he had a heart attack mm. and then a stroke, which I think made his public comments sometimes seem rambling and incoherent. And of course, his leisure time, he liked to fill with things like golf and bridge and surrounded himself with a bunch of people who you, again, would not describe as intellectual. So I think it was very tempting to dismiss him as a bit of a, a yokel while he was in office. And yet, going through the historical documents that I had to in order to research this book to look at the background for the, the farewell address, you are struck by a man with tremendous leadership abilities, which is, I think, one way to look at intelligence, uh, tremendous grasp of detail. I mean, really what we would today maybe call micromanagement level of detail, and a genuine 
curiosity about all sorts of things, you know, really what what we might think of as obscure things that would have sort of nothing to do with running the White House. So, yes, I think Eisenhower was a very smart man. He was not given to scholarship. I don't think he had a lot of time for, say, critical theory, but I think he was a very intelligent man. So when we think about Eisenhower, you say to the average Joe, all right, Dwight David Eisenhower, and you react, the first things that pop into your mind are the famous speech, which we are discussing today. Then they're going to tell you Kay Summersby. <laughs> you think so? I, I do. I wonder, to, I wonder to what degree Kay Summersby is remembered by people who didn't live through that generation. I, I'm hard-pressed to give a full answer because I was barely alive when Eisenhower died, and I don't know quite what it was like to live through that Kay Summersby moment. But I would think that most people today would remember him as a general, as the man who, you know, if not quite single-handedly, at least played one of the largest roles in ending World War II. Also, you know, one of the most popular presidents of the 20th century. He was elected handily and re-elected handily, which is a sort of hard task these days, and perhaps one of the only undefeated politicians of the modern era. He started high and he never lost. There are many people who think, and I talk to my students about this every once in a while, that if he were to emerge from the grave today, he could run for office and get overwhelmingly reelected because so many people uh, had so much faith in him. I think that's right, and I think that it's a bit of a cliche to say that in the contemporary environment, it's difficult for someone to dominate the landscape in, in the way that he did. Again, it's not that he didn't have his detractors while he was in office, and it's Mm. not that he didn't display limitations. And I think that one of the political dynamics that I explore in the book really tells you something about the limits of Eisenhower's reach and power. And it, it, it starts, or it sort of really begins to gain momentum with the Sputnik launch. He really began to kind of lose control of the message when Sputnik went up in the air and all of a sudden you had a very tangible symbol that perhaps the United States was you know, not only neck and neck in its scientific and military race with the Soviet Union, but arguably behind, because here the Soviets had this ability to launch a satellite, which you know, for those who were paying attention was sort of one step away from an ICBM, right? You just attach some kind of warhead to uh, to the thing, and uh, and it could end up anywhere. This put a great fear into the American public, certainly the American Congress, and significant portions of the military and intelligence communities. And from Eisenhower White House's point of view, that's when they sort of started to gang up on him. This political dynamic is very hard for us to remember mm. today, but Eisenhower, because of his belief in a balanced budget, really tried to restrain military spending. In fact, for several years, particularly in the first term, his military budgets were smaller than the year before, even though theoretically the Soviet threat was ever growing. And as a consequence, the Democrats in Congress were the hawks. They were the ones saying, we need to spend more. We need to spend more effectively. We need new weaponry. And there was this kind of uh, conspiracy is a strong word, but certainly a collusion between the leadership, uh, the Democratic leadership of Congress, which included John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, and senior members of the military, particularly the Air Force, but also people in the Army and, and the Navy. And they began to sort of create this collective drumbeat that said, you know, we're behind. And so there was a so-called bomber gap that the Eisenhower administration was supposedly responsible for, this idea that somehow the Soviets were producing more bombers. And then there was a missile gap 
the idea that supposedly you know we had we had been tied or surpassed uh, in terms of missile production. These turned out to be fictions, but they were very politically powerful fictions up through the 1960 election that, that John Kennedy narrowly won. So I think that while Eisenhower's popularity is uncontested, the fact is that even on a topic where he had a kind of supreme knowledge, which is military capacity, military funding, he was, especially in the second term, bested by events and by um, very adroit political maneuvers on the part of the Democratic Party. So we now have a speech, which he goes down in history as the military-industrial complex, and as you point out in your book, it was once in a prepared version as to have the word congressional in it, as you just mentioned. It didn't. It never did. This is actually worth going into. Great. One of the things about this speech that I think demonstrates its power is that several myths have grown up around mm. it, and, and one of one of the myths is that the phrase military-industrial complex began life as something else, and that something else was somehow edited out. One of the theories is that it was a so-called military-industrial-congressional complex. I find no evidence for this. You can you can look through every draft that exists of the speech, including the very earliest, some of which have now just been released by the Eisenhower Library, found in a garage that belonged to Malcolm Moose, who was the principal speechwriter on the speech. This phrase exists nowhere. I traced it to a biography of Eisenhower by Jeffrey Parrott. And if you look in his footnotes, he cites a specific oral history. I looked at that oral history. It's not in there. So this is just a myth that somehow has grown up around it. Now, it doesn't mean that at some point there wasn't maybe some oral discussion about that, but the phrase military industrial congressional was never written down anywhere that, that we can today find. And there's also there's a second theory, which is that it was supposed to be military industrial scientific complex. And this theory has been offered by Douglas Brinkley, a uh, popular historian. Mm-hmm. And there, too, there is no citation to any document. And it's interesting, though, to me that these myths grow up around speech because somehow the speech has taken on so much meaning that people feel the need to make it mean something else. Well, you know, um, and maybe it does mean those things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the drafts were there. You're absolutely right about the myth. I, I was hosting a program here on public radio one day. And a guy calls in and says, Alan, you just have to remember that a proper term and then uses the congressional term as if it was absolute fact. So the myth is a reality. Yeah, this is the old Mark Twain line around the lie gets halfway around the world before the truth puts its <laughs> boots on. You know, it's very, very difficult to combat these things to sort of put that mythological genie back into the bottle. And I do wish, now that I've documented this in my book, I, I do wish that these historians who have entered these myths into the record would take the time to either cite their sources because they don't exist or admit their error so that we can kind of get past these myths and talk about, you know, what is in the actual historical record. Okay, so I wondered if you would just take a few of those to sort of set the stage as to what was going on in Eisenhower's life and his thinking at the time. Sure. So a few things to keep in mind. One is that this is the end of his presidency. He is physically frail. He will die about eight years after this speech is delivered, after writing a, a memoir and doing not too much else in terms of being in the public eye. He is kind of politically spent in the sense that 
the Republicans have lost the White House. So this is approximately two months after the 1960 election in which his vice president, Richard Nixon, who was never particularly close with Eisenhower, but nonetheless, uh, his vice president has lost narrowly to John Kennedy. There's a great deal of mistrust around Kennedy among a White House advisors and Eisenhower himself. They think he's inexperienced. There is certainly an argument that some of this speech is aimed at him and, and, and the fear that his naivete will lead America into disaster. And then the, the other aspect of the speech that I think is, is really worth listening to is the part that nobody talks about anymore, which is the warning against a kind of scientific technological domination of America. And it's largely forgotten from the speech, I think, in part because we kind of lost that battle. I mean, the idea now that we could function without, you know, high-tech computers and so on, maybe we could, but it seems incompatible with everything that has happened in the subsequent 50 years. And so that part of it is lost. And then the final part that I am really struck by is the degree to which the critique of the military-industrial complex is not only because of the specific nature of military authority or sort of martial authority, the fear that our liberties would be robbed, the fear that we would be forced to fight wars or extended wars that, that are already being fought. There's that. But there's also a budget critique. And this is the part that is often forgotten. One of the objections that Eisenhower had to the influence of a military-industrial complex is simply that we would spend our way to defeat the Soviet Union and let no expense be spared. And he was really afraid that that would interfere with free enterprise. And so there's this wonderful phrase, which has an echo in a completely different part of today's politics. He says, we want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. Again, this is the balanced budget, Ike. And it's directly glued to the critique of the military-industrial complex, and I think people forget that aspect of it. Of course, I'm struck by the fact that there was no limit on what would be spent on World War II, and he was running it. That's right. But he recognized that that state of affairs was not sustainable. You had to do what you had to do to defeat an enemy that you were engaged in a proper ground war with. The Cold War was different. It was going to be decades long. He and his advisors recognized that. It had much larger consequences in the sense that nuclear annihilation was possible, which was not really the case in World War II or any previous war. That was something that Eisenhower was keenly aware of. And so there was a kind of pivoting that had to take place in which we had to strike a balance between what we needed to spend in order to maintain freedom and protect allies and what would simply bankrupt the country. And he was very conscious of that. And by the way, not all of his advisors agreed. His longtime Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, truly believed that there was no limit and should be no upper limit to what was spent to so-called defend America. And one of his disappointments in the 1960 presidential election was that Nixon and the Republican Party felt it necessary in order to compete with the Democrats, who, of course, were saying spend more on the military. They had to cave in on that point, too. They put it into the 1960 platform. You know, they were basically a blank check for the military, and that disappointed Eisenhower tremendously. And you hear it in the speech if you're listening for that. You're listening to The Power of Words, a co-production of WAMC and the New York State Archives Partnership Trust. I'm Alan Chartok, and we're here with James Ledbetter, author of Unwarranted Influence, Dwight D. Eisenhower and the Military-Industrial Complex. 
Okay, now that we've set the scene for the President Dwight D. Eisenhower's farewell address, it's time to listen. We'll be right back as soon as the speech is over. From the White House in the office of the President of the United States, we present an address by Dwight D. Eisenhower. This is the farewell address for President Eisenhower, whose eight years as chief executive come to an end at noon Friday. Mr. Eisenhower has chosen this time for his final speech. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Good evening, my fellow Americans. First, I should like to express my gratitude to the radio and television networks for the opportunities they have given me over the years to bring reports and messages to our nation. My special thanks go to them for the opportunity of addressing you this evening. Three days from now, after half a century in the service of our country, I shall lay down the responsibilities of office as, in traditional and solemn ceremony, the authority of the presidency is vested in my successor. This evening, I come to you with a message of leave-taking and farewell, and to share a few final thoughts with you, my countrymen. Like every other, like every other citizen, I wish the new president and all who will labor with him Godspeed. I pray that the coming years will be blessed with peace and prosperity for all. Our people expect their president and the Congress to find essential agreement on issues of great moment, the wise resolution of which will better shape the future of the nation. My own relations with the Congress, which began on a remote and tenuous basis, when long ago a member of the Senate appointed me to West Point, have since ranged to the intimate during the war and immediate post-war period, and finally to the mutually interdependent during these past eight years. In this final relationship, the Congress and the administration have, on most vital issues, cooperated well. To serve the nation, the nation good rather than mere partisanship, and so have assured that the business of the nation should go forward. So my official relationship with the Congress ends in a feeling, on my part, of gratitude that we have been able to do so much together. We now stand 10 years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Three of these involved our own country. Despite these holocausts, America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. Understandably proud of this preeminence, we yet realize that America's leadership and prestige depend not merely upon our unmatched material progress, riches, and military strength, but on how we use our power in the interest of world peace and human betterment. Throughout America's adventure in free government, our basic purposes have been to keep the peace, to foster progress in human achievement, and to enhance liberty, dignity, and integrity among peoples and among nations. To strive for less would be unworthy of a free and religious people. Any failure traceable to arrogance or our lack of comprehension or readiness to sacrifice 
would inflict upon us grievous hurt, both at home and abroad. Progress toward these noble goals is persistently threatened by the conflict now engulfing the world. It commands our whole attention, absorbs our very beings. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose, and insidious in method. Unhappily, the danger it poses promises to be of indefinite duration. To meet it successfully, there is call for not so much the emotional and transitory sacrifices of crisis, but rather those which enable us to carry forward steadily, surely, and without complaint, the burdens of a prolonged and complex struggle with liberty, the stake. Only thus shall we remain, despite every provocation, on our charted course toward permanent peace and human betterment. Crises there will continue to be. In meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. A huge increase in newer elements of our defenses, development of unrealistic programs to cure every ill in agriculture, a dramatic expansion in basic and applied research. These and many other possibilities, each possibly promising in itself, may be suggested as the only way to the road we wish to travel. But each proposal must be weighed in the light of a broader consideration the need to maintain balance in and among national programs. Balance between the private and the public economy. Balance between the cost and hoped for advantages. Balance between the clearly necessary and the comfortably desirable. Balance between our essential requirements as a nation and the duties imposed by the nation upon the individual balance between actions of the moment and the national welfare of the future. Good judgment seeks balance in progress. Lack of it eventually finds imbalance and frustration. The record of many decades stands as proof that our people and their government have, in the main, understood these truths and have responded to them well in the face of threat and stress. But threats, new in kind or degree, constantly arise. Of these, I mention two only. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, 
three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central. It also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor, tinkering in his shop, has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research. Partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. It is the task of statesmanship to mold, to balance, and to integrate these and other forces, new and old, within the principles of our democratic system, ever aiming toward the supreme goals of our free society. Another factor in maintaining balance involves the element of time. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today 
plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. Such a confederation must be one of equals. The weakest must come to the conference table with the same confidence as do we, protected as we are by our moral, economic, and military strength. That table, though scarred by many fast frustrations, past frustrations, cannot be abandoned for the certainty agony of, of the battlefield. Disarmament with mutual honor and confidence is a continuing imperative. Together we must learn how to compose differences, not with arms, but with intellect and decent purpose. Because this need is so sharp and apparent, I confess that I lay down my official responsibilities in this field with a definite sense of disappointment. As one who has witnessed the horror and the lingering sadness of war, as one who knows that another war could utterly destroy this civilization, which has been so slowly and painfully built over thousands of years, I wish I could say tonight that a lasting peace is in sight. Happily, I can say that war has been avoided. Steady progress toward our ultimate goal has been made, but so much remains to be done. As a private citizen, I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road. So in this, my last good night to you as your president, I thank you for the many opportunities you have given me for public service in war and in peace. I trust in that, in that, in that service, you find some things worthy. As for the rest of it, I know you will find ways to improve performance in the future. You and I, my fellow citizens, need to be strong in our faith that all nations under God will reach the goal of peace with justice. May we be ever unswerving in devotion to principle, confident but humble with power, diligent in pursuit of the nation's great goals. To all the peoples of the world, I once more give expression to America's prayerful and continuing aspiration. We pray that peoples of all faiths, all races, all nations may have their great human needs satisfied, that those now denied opportunity shall come to enjoy it to the full that all who yearn for freedom may experience its spiritual blessings. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility. That all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity, and that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed 
by the binding force of mutual respect and love. Now, on Friday noon, I am to become a private citizen. I am proud to do so. I look forward to it. Thank you, and good night. We have presented the farewell address by the President of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who spoke this evening from his office in the White House. That was President Dwight D. Eisenhower's farewell address, delivered January 17, 1961. I'm Alan Chartok, and you're listening to The Power of Words, a year-long series of programs that follows American history through some of the most memorable and inspiring political speeches of our time. Joining us on the program today is James Ledbetter, author of Unwarranted Influence, Dwight D. Eisenhower and the Military-Industrial Complex. Well, James Ledbetter, as I've said before, I loved your book, but I wanted to ask you about something that appeared early in the book, which were some of the theses of what went into this. You had the Merchant of Death thesis, the War Economy thesis, the Garrison State thesis, and the Technocratic Elite thesis. Could you go into some of those for us? Absolutely. So one of the operating premises of my book is that, you know, a speech this powerful could probably not uh, sustain uh, public interest for as long as it has. It's been a half century now, and we're still listening to it and talking about it, unless it tapped into some pre-existing ideas. It's not It's not something like Athena that can spring fully grown from the head of, of the person giving the speech. And Eisenhower, largely unconsciously, but not unconscious to his speechwriters, was echoing some themes that had been very powerful just a couple of decades before, sort of culminating in the 30s, but beginning really with the end of World War I. And that is this idea that there's something intrinsically corrupting about having the profit motive intermingle with the practice of warfare, and particularly in the American context, although there are certainly many other examples around the world. There was a widespread belief after World War I that the war had been kind of created or, or inflated by arms merchants who could profit from selling arms to both sides. And that as people and historians began to look into this, they sort of came across this idea that, in fact, this had been going on pretty much throughout the history of mankind. And you had, after World War I, because of the Great Depression, a lot of very angry and very poor, sort of disenfranchised World War I veterans who, in fact, at one point marched onto Washington demanding bonuses, and they were, they were shot in the streets. It was a horrible, uh, horrible episode in American history. And so there was a potent political belief in the 1930s that if we didn't do something to stop these merchants of death, as they were called in, in the title of a best-selling 1934 book, that we would be brought into war again. And so there, was, there were congressional commissions that investigated profit motive and how we got into World War I and the revolving door between, say, people who worked in the Navy and then would leave and go and work for steel companies that make ships for the Navy and get paid three times as much money, this sort of thing. And this was, for several years, one of the most powerful political themes in the United States. It went dark when we got into World War II. But even after World War II, there are sort of other theses that come up that I think influence the thinking behind the speech. Another one is the idea of a garrison state. This is a phrase that was often used in the 40s and 50s to describe what I think later generations would call an authoritarian or totalitarian society. In a garrison state, 
the military basically runs most or all of the show. And the society is sort of defined by people who are experts in violence and, and means of suppression. And everything else, political rights, the economy, gets subsumed to the, the military needs of the state. And there are various versions of this. Most developed is by a sociologist named Laswell. I've not seen any evidence that Eisenhower ever read Laswell, but his speechwriter, Malcolm Moose, certainly did. And Eisenhower himself used the phrase garrison state frequently throughout his presidency, even before his presidency. This was sort of the worst thing that he could imagine in a society that became dominated by the military. And I think that influenced what he was talking about. And then there is this other notion of a war economy. Uh, That is, for most of American history, we would draft an army and gin up a bunch of weapons whenever we needed to if we were going to war. When we weren't at war, there was really no permanent armament industry. In Eisenhower's phrase that he uses in, in the speech that we've just heard, the makers of swords could become makers of plowshares and vice versa. The buildup of the arsenal of democracy became permanent around the time of World War II. And there were some people in and around the Eisenhower administration, certainly, as well as elsewhere, who believed that this was a good thing, that by kind of having a permanent war industry, we would create jobs, we could sell the weapons and, and ships and planes abroad, and we could, we could kind of guarantee prosperity through what some refer to as sort of military Keynesianism. We would today call it stimulus, right? Defense, <laughs> defense spending as stimulus. Eisenhower was really not that comfortable with that idea. He, he, he believed that that would, that would, that would bankrupt us. Uh, it would distort the economy because it's not really competitive bidding. It's not really a free market. It's more kind of government directed. But there are lots of people, and there's still lots of people, who argue that that's a positive thing. And then the final thesis is what I call this sort of fear of technocracy. And this is a, this is a very big theme in, in the 1950s and late 40s and 50s. You see it in literature, I think in books like 1984, in Brave New World, in The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, this, this idea that we were kind of becoming too technology-driven, too automated, that our, our rights, our liberties, our identities were being stripped in favor of the mass. And, you know, there, there were lots of best-selling books, some of which were made into movies on this theme. And you get that, particularly in the second part of the speech, where he's talking about, you know, it's no longer the, the one professor scribbling on a blackboard. It's this computer-driven team of five dozen people who are, who are pursuing this research thing that the government controls. That's a the recurring theme in American rhetoric. And I think something that Eisenhower was sort of keenly aware of. So all of those things fused together become... I think, the military-industrial complex. And because each strand is powerful in and of itself, the rope is extremely powerful when they're all combined. We're talking to James Ledbetter. His book is Unwarranted Influence, Dwight D. Eisenhower and the Military-Industrial Complex. So there were some pretty scary characters. You've already mentioned one to me, John Foster Dulles. There was his brother, Alan Dulles. There were people like General Curtis LeMay. Curtis uh, LeMay. <laughs> you know, who yeah. wanted to bomb the hell out of China. I mean, you know, I, yeah. now, and now we get into the, you know, the, the period following the speech. And, you know, I think that Eisenhower's sense of balance the balance between martial authority and civilian authority was really particularly threatened by the Air Force. Remember that the Air Force 
didn't really exist prior to World War II, really. You had the Strategic Air Command, and prior to that, we didn't really have combat aircraft in any meaningful way. And so the rise of the influence of the Air Force both in terms of its budget and when this sort of idea of a nuclear war first arose. Remember, there were no missiles in the beginning, or, or there were sort of proto-missiles. It was all bombs. Uh, and so, so suddenly all of the ships were put in front of the Air Force. And this bothered Eisenhower a great deal. And the man who was running the Air Force was Curtis LeMay, who was something of a renegade. We really haven't seen a figure quite like him in the American military for a while. Maybe Oliver North is something of a close parallel. But LeMay was a bit of a nut and a kind of closet believer or almost out-of-the-closet believer in in a first-strike capability, which was a a no-no, at least officially. And there was a real feeling that he was sort of off the reservation, out of control. And that feeling, as soon as the Kennedy administration came in and started to kind of look through the, the halls and the books, they reached the exact same conclusion. And they start to try and kind of cut LeMay and the Air Force off budgetarily. So they they scrap weapons for a a bomber that's been kind of in and out of production for a while. And lo and behold, you know, the Air Force through Congress finds ways to strike back. And you have a showdown in the very early days of the Kennedy administration about who actually has budgetary authority over the military. This is a very interesting question constitutionally because, of course, the president is the commander-in-chief. And so you think, you know, he ought to be able to direct the military budget to be spent on whatever he thinks or she thinks is appropriate. But it is Congress that actually crafts the budget and arguably can direct where that money goes. And it's kind of a dangerous situation, a kind of dangerous showdown. And it happens in 62, and Congress blinks. But it's very clear to some commentators that this is what Eisenhower was talking about. This is what the unwarranted influence of the military-industrial complex looks like. You get this sort of entrenched interest of the people who make the bombers who are then in cahoots with the Congress that pays for the bombers. And the kind of currency between them is both the defense budget itself and the jobs that are created by manufacturing, which translates into votes. So you have this kind of vicious circle that is maybe as powerful as the president of the United States, which is a disturbing thought and and at the root of Eisenhower's speech. And so here's a very, very early instance, this showdown with the Air Force and with LeMay, in which some of the more astute commentators say, yeah, this is it. This is the military-industrial complex. Watch out for this. Eisenhower was right. And this is important because this is way before Vietnam. This has nothing directly to do with the Vietnam War. Later, when we get more deeply entrenched in Vietnam, you have a lot of people saying, okay, this is the military-industrial complex. But here are people saying it in the very early days after Eisenhower gave the speech. And I think that's important for how the idea was shaped. I wanted to talk to you, James Ledbetter, about two things that have always fascinated me about Eisenhower, as long as we're talking about the man and his character, two things were he made a pledge that he would go to Korea. (laughs) And that Korean solution is still plaguing us to this day as we speak. The second question I had about his character had to do with Joe McCarthy, because he, he stayed silent for a long time. But in the end, he took him on. And I'm wondering if you could just pay a little attention to both of those for us. 
Absolutely. I mean, again, I, I've not written here a biography of Eisenhower sure. and don't claim to be an expert on every facet of his character or history. However, I did look into both of these issues as, as part of the research for this book on, on his farewell address. You know, the Korea statement was one of the craftiest political ploys, uh, certainly of the era. All he said was, I will go to Korea. <laughs> it, you know, you can hear from that, I will go to Korea and end the Korean War, which he sort of does do. But, you know, the only thing you could really catch him on was, does he go? <laughs> and so, yes, he does go to Korea. And it turns out he does put an end to the, to the U.S. involvement in the conflict there. You're quite right that the Korean situation plagues us still, and not only because recent tensions between North and South Korea. Um, the fact is... Technically speaking, that war never ended. It was a conflict declared by the United Nations, and for reasons that are rather obscure, that has never been said to have been ended. And so technically speaking, that war is still going on, uh, which is weird. Uh, and frankly, it, it, it shows up later on in my book when in the 70s, when a lot of military contractors who, who should be doing well because of the Vietnam War aren't doing well, the Pentagon actually privatizes them and buys them outright, which is you know a, such a weird moment in the history of, of the military industrial complex. And the rationale that they use is that they have this power because the Korean War has never ended, which I think is very strange. The second part of your question has to do with McCarthy. You know, it's very clear from the historical record that we now have access to that Eisenhower and his his closest advisors hated McCarthy, partly because of they thought the guy was a kook, they thought the the anti-communism was was extreme, but mostly they found him to be a giant pain in the neck. He just sort of got in the way of everything they wanted to do, but they didn't know quite what to do with him. And you're right that they were kind of late to take any action, not much later than the Senate itself, which probably could have found grounds to censure him years before it actually did. You know, I don't think there's anything particularly malign in that relationship. You know, you could theorize that Eisenhower people in, in some way found McCarthy to be useful and so kind of let him do his thing while sort of theoretically keeping a distance. That's not consistent with the way that McCarthy is discussed in the internal records you see in the administration. Now, you know, it's not like they made a, a, a big enemy of him either, but he was primarily perceived as an irritant. That's the tone that comes across over and over again. But I think that in the view of Eisenhower himself, there were just bigger issues that had to be tackled, and he thought that the McCarthy thing would, would eventually go away. And then when it doesn't go away, they take steps to isolate him. You know, and certainly lots of people have said that it's one of the great flaws of the Eisenhower presidency. He should have taken McCarthy on earlier. I don't have any problem with that thesis, but I don't think that it tells us much about flaws in Eisenhower's character as much as what was perceived to be politically possible at the time. But, I, but I'm fascinated, uh, James Ledbetter, about the way in which Ike decided it was time. Because apparently, you know, uh, McCarthy, so full of himself, like a big engorged tick, you know, ready to implode or explode, goes after the army and by extension Eisenhower and the State Department saying they're all a bunch of communists. And so when yeah. he's attacked, he has to fight back finally. I think that's true, but I you know, I don't I, I don't know 
that that was necessarily the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm. I mean, it certainly was in terms of timing. But if they had seen a politically viable and convenient way to shut him down in 1953, I think they would have taken it, regardless of what the target was. He was an irritant. He was a, he was a distraction to what they were trying to do. Having said that, I suspect that some of the, the sort of really internal stuff would not be in the records. And as I said, I wasn't particularly focused on the Eisenhower-McCarthy relationship. So I'm going to leave it to other historians to draw that particular conclusion. So as we wind down, I wanted to ask you about what people have done with this speech. Virtually everybody of a semi-left persuasion invokes the speech and says, yep. as that great Republican, Dwight Eisenhower, you know, has yeah. said. So this thing obviously became very important to an awful lot of people. It certainly did. And it's, you know, I, I think Eisenhower and his advisors would have been surprised by, as you say, how much the left picked it up. That I don't think that was the target audience, as it were. <laughs> yeah. But I do think that Eisenhower would be pleased that people are still talking about it. Because I think the important thing is, one of the reasons why we're still talking about it is the sense that he was onto something and the sense that while I don't think we live in a garrison state and I don't think the worst fears that he had have been realized, there's no question that we still grapple with the same issues about sure. civilian authority, civil liberties. You know, you had in the Bush administration, ostensibly because of 9-11 and ostensibly because of the Iraq war, you had people being American citizens being wiretapped without warrants. That's really disturbing. It's disturbing to a lot of people, left, right, center, you know, wherever. And it's this, it, there's always that sense that you could slip into something that is not a democratic country because of the justifications being pushed on you by a, a military industrial complex. So the warning, I think, is incredibly relevant today. It should be relevant to both the left and the right. And I think one of the places where the right can still kind of enter into it here mm. is, as I mentioned before, the, the fiscal aspect of it. You know, we're, we're now spending, depending on how you, you, you calculate it, something like a trillion dollars a year on the military, even though, you know, the enemy that, that Eisenhower knew is gone, doesn't exist anymore. Mm. He was worried about a buildup to an enemy that doesn't exist, and we're spending more now. There's something not quite right about that, and I think a lot of people sense that, and hence, you know, people are, are, are watching this speech on YouTube, uh, you know, thousands of times a week. But if, in fact, it turns out that we are so addicted to being part of this military-industrial complex that we can't do without it, that's pretty telling also. It's a grim vision. You know, Eisenhower didn't really have a solution for it except the notion of an enlightened and informed citizenry. And that's, you know, uh, about the best antidote that anyone has come up with. Well, all I can tell you is I could continue to talk to you for the next three hours. You're a terrific sport to do this with us. The book is Unwarranted Influence, James Ledbetter. It is published by Yale University Press. We are out of time. James Ledbetter, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks also to our producer, David Gustina, the Dwight D. Eisenhower Presidential Library and Museum for providing the speech, and a special thanks to Bob Bullock from the New York State Archives Partnership Trust. Remember, you can listen to any of our programs online at wamc.org. Be sure to join us next time for another discussion about a great political speech on the power of words. 
been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store.